Welcome to Our Weird World. I'm your host, John Henson. And this week, talking about just a collection of awful people from history uh, that you probably haven't heard of because history has been full of awful people. And we're not talking about like serial killers or like Hitler or anything like that. But these are just some other generally just terrible people that have lived uh, throughout history. Uh, not unlike the United States government who chart, like just our whole tax structure is so stupid. Like, and I get it. Cause probably someone was along the way was like, I don't trust the government to take the right amount of taxes. And so then the government was just like, all right, then do your taxes yourself. And so not only do taxes get taken out of our paycheck every couple of weeks, but then at, at each year, we have to go back and let the government know how much was that, or at least let the government know that we know how much money was taken out. And if you filled out your forms the wrong way, because you got to fill out a W-4, you got to fill out, uh, at least in North Carolina, an NC-4. I'm sure in every other state, it's a, another four thing. Uh, and then... You got to make sure that you tell them how you're filing and what your little numbers are, if it's a one or a zero. And then you got to do math and you got to figure it all out yourself. And if you get it wrong, then you owe the government thousands of dollars in money. Not that I'm speaking from very recent past experience or anything, but God, what a pain. Just like, I don't know, man, They're just the this, this tax structure in this country is beyond stupid. And that alone, like that alone just makes America not number one in the world, right? Like still probably top 10, still holding on to that, but not the best. Certainly not the best. I think, uh, if the government's just going to take it out of our check, like that, that's just it. And that's it. It's gone. And that's all. And like, you don't get any back. We don't have to go through this stuff. Every year, it's just, there. there's your money, government. Thank you for taxing me for having a job. And, th- like, that's also stupid, but, God. Like, you have to have a job to live. But then the government also wants you to pay them for the money that you make. Not for the things that you use, but for the, the job that you have. And just, ooh. God, I just hate it so much. Like, even, here's the thing. Even if we had like sales tax, which we do, but in like, you know, a gas tax, which we have, uh, you know, some sort of highway tax, like even if all the roads were toll roads, all right, fine. Uh, maybe there's, uh, some other sort of like utilities tax or something like even if that ended up being more expensive, that would at least make sense. And I would be fine with that as long as it meant I didn't have to do my taxes every year because it's stupid. Anyway, that's completely uh, like we're in the middle of June at this point. It's not even tax season anymore, but that was on my mind. Anyway, speaking of awful, here's some awful people. 
Our first story here is of Alexander Keith Jr., who was born in Scotland in 1827. Uh, His family soon immigrated to Nova Scotia in Canada, where Alexander began working for his uncle at his brewery. Um, But Keith wasn't having a ton of fun doing that, so he began working as a secret agent for the Confederacy, because uh, by now it's the, the 1860s, the Civil War is going on, and like... I don't know, being a spy for a rebel nation is more fun than working at a brewery in Canada. So Keith begins working as a courier and a blockade runner. Uh, he was first involved in the Chesapeake affair, which was basically like this diplomatic incident um, in which like union forces violated British sovereignty on during this mission while trying to capture a Confederate ship, but it was in Canadian waters. And so there was this whole big kind of dust up and like the British weren't really happy that the, the Americans were fighting each other in their territorial waters. And so it became this whole thing. Nothing really ever came of it, but Alexander Keith was involved in that. Uh, Keith also tried to help Confederates send clothes that were tainted with yellow fever to Northern cities. So biological warfare going on during the civil war. Um, and then after swindling his own criminal associates out of a ton of money, uh, Keith ended up marrying a woman from St. Louis and then settled out in the, in the Prairie States. Uh, one of his associates though, eventually tracked him down and was going to get revenge and kill him for being conned. So Keith and his wife fled back to Europe Uh, He changed his name to William King Thomas and then started kind of intermingling with wealthy socialites in Germany. Uh, You know, he built up this whole backstory. And so he's, you know, claiming that he's like a member of the nobility and he's, you know, back to conning people and all of that. Um, But unfortunately, he began to run out of money and needed to figure out a way to continue living this lavish lifestyle that he had created for himself. But rather than getting a job like a normal person... Keith decided to start trying to commit insurance fraud uh, and not just insurance fraud on like, you know, people like some serial killers would. Uh, He decided to start blowing up passenger ships, boats like the Titanic, not exactly the Titanic, but, you know, stuff like that uh, to get gigantic at the time insurance payouts. Um, His plan was pretty simple. Like he would insure several containers and briefcases that he would put on these passenger ships by claiming that they were full of gold coins and really expensive caviar and then place them on board the ship as mail items. And so like, you know, you know how you go to like UPS or even the post office and they're like, Oh, what's the value of the thing? And you tell them a value is like, Oh, do you want to insure this for this amount of money? Yes, I would. And so like, you can do that. Like you can probably even do this today, right? You can, uh, (laughs) I I do not recommend doing this, but I think theoretically you could like go to UPS, give them a box and tell them that it's full of something very expensive, computers, gold bars, coins, whatever. And then you insure it for hundreds of dollars. You know, you declare a value, you insure it for a certain amount of money, and then you just bomb the truck that the package was on, make the insurance claim, get money. And, you know, no one is any wiser. At least it's the gist of it. Again, don't do that. But if you were going to, that's probably how you would do it. Um, The problem 
for Keith, though, was that he was only going to get about 150 pounds for each box, each cargo item that he placed on the ship. But Keith really needed the money, and he figured that there was nothing else he could do, so he went forward with this plan. So he gets a bunch of boxes on the ship, insures them for 150 pounds apiece, and as the last of the cargo, and basically instead of something actually valuable, Keith was placing bombs more or less in these pieces of cargo on the ship on the ship but as the last box was being put on the ship keith's package slipped out of the attendant's hands and it hit the ground and exploded immediately um the blast was actually so massive that it caused two adjacent ships to completely flip over um keith who was watching from another ship in the harbor actually saw this all happen. And then he walked into his suite and then shot himself. Uh, he actually survived the initial gunshot wound, but he ended up dying a week later from his injuries, but didn't even wait around to, uh, <laughs> didn't even wait around to collect his insurance money because I guess the ship was it, like, the stuff wasn't supposed to explode until it was out at sea. And instead he caused, just this massive explosion in the harbor and uh, figured he was done for. And so he just killed himself, which is great. Uh, our next story here is of James Jameson, who was the grandson of John Jameson, who, uh, if you are an alcohol aficionado, yes, that is the uh, founder of the Jameson Irish Whiskey Company. And so James Jameson, uh, living the lavish lifestyle thanks to the massive wealth that his family had accumulated from their whiskey business. Um, and like many overly spoiled wealthy heirs, Jameson spent a lot of time traveling just because he could. He didn't have any other responsibilities, and so he could just travel around the world. Uh, in 1888, he joined the Emin Pasha Relief Ex Expedition to Central Africa to bring supplies to Emin Pasha, who was this uh, leader of the Ottoman province in Sudan who had recently been cut off by a revolt, and so uh, they needed help, and so there were all these relief missions and all there to it. So... Uh, shortly after Jameson's party arrived in Africa, the expedition splintered off into different groups to provide relief for Emin Pasha in Sudan and then uh, annexing the land for the Belgian Free State Colony in the Congo. Um, there was, and basically, there was like a disagreement. Like the expedition wanted to provide relief like they were supposed to. Another one decided, hey, we're all here. Let's just go ahead and colonize this place, which eh, I don't know how easy that would have been. Uh, somehow, James Jameson was put in charge of the rear column of the expedition, which was located in Ribakiba, which was just so happened to be a small village of cannibals uh, in Sudan. Uh, Jameson, once he learned about this, he was very curious as to how cannibalism worked in practice and began working with a local slave trader named Tipu Tip to try to see if they could see some happen live. Uh, after a brief discussion, Tipu brought a 10-year-old slave girl uh, to the camp and exchanged her for six handkerchiefs. So Jameson, no money even, just Jameson had these six handkerchiefs and he traded them for this 10-year-old girl. Um, the village chief then uh, took the handkerchiefs uh, and claimed that this is a present from a white man. He wishes to see the girl eaten. And 
the villagers who were more than happy to oblige Jameson then went on to tie this girl to a tree and went off to go and sharpen their knives. And Jameson, he's like, Oh man, this is really going down, bro. This is super cool. And he's journaling all of this. This is why we know uh, this story took place. Um, when the villagers returned, one villager walked up to the girl who was tied to a tree, stabbed her twice in the stomach. And then three other men came forward and starting cutting this girl into pieces. Uh, over time, each villager would walk up to the tree and take a piece of the girl before coming down, before going down to the river, washing the meat in the water. Uh, while all of this was going on, like until this girl died, like she never made a sound, like she just hung there on the tree. Like she just accepted that this was what was going to happen to her. Um, Jameson ended up dying later that year from a fever before he could uh, ultimately be tried for murder. Uh, the Jameson family actually used their wealth to encourage the Belgian government to cover up the event and to just kind of keep the focus on their whiskey rather than their, uh, psychotic son who paid to watch a girl get cannibalized. Uh, our, our final story here is of Marie Elizabeth Consboutboul, who was born on June 10th, 1924 to just a regular French family, which means they were super Catholic. Um, her strict father, very strict um, in terms of religion and the academics and manners and properness and all that kind of stuff. Uh, she he wanted to have uh, he wanted Marie Elizabeth to have a career in the legal field, but Marie just wanted to play the piano. Um, she even failed basically the French equivalent of the bar exam twice just to get out of having to be a lawyer. Um, but she her family kept forcing her to go to school, and she ultimately received her doctorate in law and was sworn into the Paris Court of Appeals. Well, in 1950, Marie met a Tunisian Jewish dentist named Dr. Robert Nassim Boutboul and fell in love with him. Uh, the two got married, they had a daughter, and then be began building this very high-profile life together in Paris. Um, unfortunately, Robert died in a plane crash only a couple of years into the marriage, which brought everything that Marie was building to a screeching halt. Like she was really enjoying being this socialite. They were a really wealthy family. Uh, everyone knew them. And all of a sudden, all of that is gone. Um, over 30 years later in 1982, Marie's daughter, their only child, uh, Dari was one of the most famous equestrians in France because France cares about that sort of thing. Um, but Derry met Jacques Perrault, a high-profile lawyer in Paris, and the two kind of, you know, it's kind of the same story. They fell in love. They start planning their own high society life together, and then Derry got pregnant, and so the two were rushed into a marriage, so Catholic Jesus would be happy, and the child wouldn't be this bastard little turd who was going to hell because it was born out of wedlock because that's important apparently um well after the marriage jacques turned out to be a horrible husband as most frenchmen are kidding um but he was constantly having affairs uh constantly cheating on dari who eventually filed for divorce which then turned into a contentious battle over the couple's now three-year-old son uh, Jacques, however, fought back and then hired a private investigator to look into Dari's family 
to find whatever dirt he could. And this private investigator was not prepared for what he would find out. Um, they quickly learned that Marie uh, had been disbarred since the 1980s, even though she had continued practicing law. Uh, she had been disbarred for charges of corruption and embezzlement, including a time that she conned missionaries out of millions of francs over a 10-year period. Marie also faked having cancer on five separate occasions to get out of various <laughs> issues and obligations. <laughs> Which is funny. Like, it reminds me of um, the Alamo Christian Foundation when uh, What's-Her-Face claimed to have terminal cancer for years to get uh, more and more donations and sympathy and to get the cult followers to give them more money. And then she actually did get terminal cancer and died. But Marie, who spent over 30 years just faking cancer to get out of doing stuff, um, is just like that's about as low as you can get, I think, um, in terms of like the lies that you can tell. Um, but with all of that information, Jacques threatened to expose uh, Darius family if he did not get fair visitation of their child. So he uses all of this blackmail in the divorce proceedings to try to get more visitation rights. However, in a very shocking twist, Jacques was shot three times and killed on December 27, 1985. Uh, this murder horrified everyone in Paris's upper class, but police had no idea who had done it. Crazy, right? Almost like the guy who gets all of this dirt dug up and then he suddenly gets shot and no one has any idea who did it? Huh. Uh, right. So uh, four years later in 1989, the body of Bruno Dasach, uh, a known hitman, was found uh, floating in the water near Le Havre, uh, a port city on the northern coast of France. It might be Le Havre because it's spelled like Brett Favre, like F-A, like, you know how Brett Favre is like F-A-V-R-E? Well, this is F-A, or Le Havre is uh, L-E, obviously, and then H-A-V-R-E. So I think it's Le Havre. I'm going with Le Havre. Um, but anyway, this hitman's body was found in the water on the northern coast of France. And police started looking into this guy's life and quickly figured out the entire story. Um, Marie Elizabeth Consbutbul had found out that her son-in-law, Jacques, had uncovered all of her dark secrets and if he made all of that public, it would have wrecked everything. Like her entire reputation would have been killed. Like she would have been probably cast out from Paris's upper crust society, all of it. And so Marie then hired Dasach to kill him, to kill Jacques, to kill her son-in-law. And then um, after that happened, Dasach actually started telling people, what he was doing, which is not what you're supposed to do as a hitman. Hitman's supposed to stay quiet. But he starts kind of uh, throwing out everything that he was doing. And so then Marie had him killed, or she killed him herself. Um, in an even more shocking twist, remember how I said that um, Marie's, Marie's husband, Dr. Robert Nassim Boothbull, the father of Dari, remember how I said he died in a plane crash? Guess what? He didn't. Um, he, uh, Marie had actually wanted to divorce him 
but couldn't go through with it thanks to that old-fashioned Catholic guilt. So instead, Marie paid her own husband to fake his death and then move out of the country, which is insane to me. Like, how much pull does this woman have? And, like, I get it. Like, she comes from a wealthy family, but, like, I don't know. She's a fake lawyer who then married into this other wealthy dude gets the Catholic guilt, wants a divorce, can't do it. So, like, and here's the thing. How do you justify that, right? It's like Jesus doesn't want us to get divorced. So how about we just lie to everyone and just say that you're dead and you'll fake your own death and you'll move away. I'll even pay you a bunch of money. How is that better in Jesus's eyes than getting a divorce? I don't, oh, God, I just, I can't. Um, eventually Marie, uh, you know, she gets put on trial. She insists that she has nothing to do with either murder of Dosach or of Jacques Perrault. Uh, instead, <laughs> instead, Marie starts blaming the Vatican, uh, the Opus Dei, which is a subsection of the Catholic Church, and the Freemasons for like all conspiring against her for something. I don't know. It, was, it didn't make any sense. Uh, when no one believed her, obviously, she then faked having a heart attack during trial. <laughs> Which, and still no one believed her, especially after she faked her seventh heart attack. This woman faked seven heart attacks while on trial. And no one believed her any single time. <laughs> so this woman is a real piece of work. Because she's, you know, on top of like claiming that she has cancer, now she's faking seventh heart attack right like whoa no never mind that's not even gonna happen that way i just had a weird connection where like you know how on sanford and son the old man would fake having a heart attack he's like i'm coming elizabeth and this woman is named marie elizabeth and i thought for a second like oh maybe that's where that came from but no sanford and son would have happened before this this is happening in Either way, like Sanford and Son happened before. Anyway, it's beside the point altogether. Um, Marie was eventually sentenced to 15 years in jail. However, she was released in 1988 due to, quote, poor health. But she lived for another 23 years and then finally died on April 15, 2021 at age 96. She never confessed to any kind of wrongdoing What did we learn?